1: You've tuned into Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website and the Freedom of Species website. All podcasts are on iTunes. For some reasons, when we hear of the freedoms of majestic wild horses being denied... It arrests the attention of the toughest of hearts and we are talking about Brumbies or wild horses today in Australia as well as uh, we'll hear some community service announcements later on. I'm Emma Townsend and joining me in the studio is my fellow FOS presenter Kate Gracie. Hello. And our very special guest May Lee Sun, editor of the Wild Horse Journal. Maylee has written extensively about wild horses amongst other things and her latest article is titled In Defence of the Australian Wild Horse and the Pseudoscience that Condemns It. Welcome to the show Maylee. Hi Emma, thanks for having me. Um, We appreciate you coming in and sharing your knowledge with us on what is one of the first Melbourne summer days.
2: Yeah, happy to do so.
1: Firstly, can you clarify the terminology, like the names used? Is it a Brumby a wild horse? Is there is it the same species? Does the
2: naming matter? It, it doesn't really matter. It was a designation that's probably used as, um, I guess, um, an Australian colloquialism or a s- slang to call it a Brumby, which just refers to the wild horses that live in Australia, just like a wild horse in America would be called a Mustang. Okay.
1: Okay. Can you tell us about the Wild Horse Journal, the, the purpose of it, and
2: why did you actually start it? So the way that my, my blog, Wild Horse Journal, was started was after I had um, moved to Australia. Um, and with, my partner had owned four domestic horses, and I was looking for a horse of my own. And in the adoption process and search, um, I really did not want to... Uh, obtain a horse uh, from a breeder or a private sale. I wanted to look for, for a horse that um, came from a sanctuary yeah. and that's when I discovered that there were wild horses in Australia. I had no idea prior to that time. So when was this? When did you So that was in 2010. In Australia? Oh okay, yeah. wow. that's so, rather
1: recently really. Yeah,
2: recently, like six and a half years ago. Yeah. And um, in my search I found that there were wild horses and when I found out um, after adopting Trooper, um, how horrendous the situation was for the horses here, um, I decided to start blogging about it. And that's how Wild Horse Journal started. And um, just have spoken to people all over the world about different wild horse populations in their various countries.
1: So you basically, the Wild Horse Journal is an online portal website for uh, you've compiled i mean i've seen it but can you tell us a bit more you've it's extensive it's comprehensive
2: you cover it's it's got everything on it um probably could use a bit more to be honest um i have written articles and have done a bit of research on wild horse populations from around the world mainly focusing on um, australia and the united states however um there's a list of um Websites on there as well on the left-hand side of of um, the website wildhorsejournal.com. I also have a Facebook page by the same name Wild Horse Journal. Um, but on the website itself, there's a list of um, an extensive list of resources and reading material. Um, there's various tabs on there that you can click on, and that will take you to the information. Um, so if you're looking for a wild horse population in, uh, in a specific area, there are organizations that you can connect with. I mean, it's really too much for one person to cover on their own. But if, mm. um, it, it does give people access to a, and an awareness of how, just how many populations are out there and how many countries. Mm.
1: You mentioned Trooper. Tell us about Trooper and how you met.
2: So the way that, you know, as I mentioned, I was in the process of looking for my own horse. And um, I, I've looked looked at everything from you know Clydesdales to standard breds and um, Arabian horses. And then again, I started Googling sanctuaries in Australia. And for some reason, his picture came up. And um, I said to my partner, oh my gosh, I, I think I found my horse. And he was just a foal at the time. And I had read his story. He was captured in Kosciuszko um, during a government culling operation and um, was whisked to safety because he ended up at the abattoir because he didn't sell at the sale yards. Um, So he was at the Camden sale yards, and um, mistakenly that particular herd of Brumbies um, landed there when they were supposed to be taken straight to the abattoir, but lucky for him, there was that delay. And uh, a couple of uh, Brumby activists had heard about them and went to the sale yards just outside of sydney and were able to rescue a few of them and that was the founding of the hunter valley brumby association was through that first rescue of theirs and trooper was one of them along with another foal and um the the woman who started it, Catherine massey um had um put a photo up online of uh, these two brumbies And he was still just um, a young one and just scraggly and nothing to speak of. It's probably not a horse that someone would have called beautiful, especially as a foal. Um, He looked like a, a, a woolly mammoth and was disproportioned just like foals are and puppies are. And, uh, and yet I just saw some something in him. I saw the light in his eyes and just said, Bruce, I've got to fly up there and I, 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 I need to meet this horse. You were in, in love. I was in love. Yeah. It was love at first sight. <laughs>
0: and, and how old would
1: he have been um, then?
2: He was probably captured around um, eight months of age. And when I saw him, he was probably 17 months. Okay. So he was at the... Um, at uh, the Hunter Valley Brumby Association for about 10 month, ten more months um, before um, I discovered him. And as soon as I saw him in person, um, I was able to go up to him and just just let him know that he'll always be loved and protected. That was the first thing that came out of my mouth when I saw him. Getting beautiful. teary-eyed, just starting to think about it. It's beautiful um,
0: how you say you meet in person.
2: Yeah, I Do met you know? him in person. met him yes. in person. Yeah. And it's so... Yeah. Uh,
0: I don't know, None of this eat. It or you know that it's yes. you, you meet it's a person meeting another person.
2: Yes, yes, it was it was incredible, and I I just knew it, and that's when I fell in love with Australia. I mean, yes, there was a bloke involved as well, but <laughs> <laughs> but I also um, I fell in love in Australia. I fell in love with Australia when when I when I met the Brumby. Yeah,
1: yeah. Can, so Trooper was obviously rounded up in this culling process at a very young age. Yes, um, can you tell us why? Uh, why horses like him are being rounded up
2: well the let's say the 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 political reason for the roundups is you know the, the standard political reason given is that they're destroying the environment and um, that wasn't the case before there was designation for, uh, um, national parks. And that would be true of other countries as well, including the United States, where there's a massive issue right now with, um, the government trying to circumvent laws regarding the Mustangs. Um, and that has to do with, um, um, natural resource businesses wanting what's underneath the ground that the Mustangs live on. Right. And, um, so in Australia, um, my sense is that, um, you also have a which we can talk about now or later, um, quite a lucrative um, trade in um, horse meat for dog food as well as overseas consumption. So it's quite a profitable business. Um, I'm not sure if you want me to go yeah, a little no, bit let's, into that uh, now. Well,
1: whenever we talk about, I guess it comes back to whenever we talk about removing wild horses
2: that's backtrack a bit, or Brumbies, what happens to them? Yes, they end up going getting culled they get um, taken for dog food there's only which is a lucrative which is really industry. quite lu- lucrative industry there, it's a two billion dollar industry um just for the pet food itself i mean i guess pet food products in australia are about a six billion dollar a year industry a year a year and yeah. the
1: brumby um from the abattoir the wild horses from the abattoirs.
2: yes because they get taken from the culling operations straight to the abattoir on occasion Um, you'll find some in the sale yards Um, you know I have people who being a blogger and um, a freelance journalist people often tell me information and I hear of information of Brumbies ending up in sale yards because people can make a buck out of them by selling them to the doggers Um, other people can get a cheap horse that way but most of them will go directly to the abattoirs. So we
0: we never see on a on a can of dog food it never says horse meat
2: no it doesn't and I think that that's that's an area that I'd love to do more research on because you know your your biggest pet food producers in Australia would be uh, Mars and Nestle and I think they probably dominate the field here Um, I don't know which particular dog food brands are theirs because they're always you know subdivisions of these multinationals um, but that is an area that I would love to do more research on to find out. Uh, maybe, maybe that's time for, I mean, we could do another show where um, I'd love to do a bit more investigation or somebody should. Yeah, sure. um, I,
1: I guess uh, what you're saying there is enlightening because it the reality is uh, most of them, would you say, the majority, I'm not sure the percentage, would end up at the abattoir rather than you hear of many rescue rescue stories such as your own with Trooper um, there are some wonderful people out there that are mm. rescuing and rehoming these horses but the majority go to the abattoir.
2: Right because there aren't enough homes. I mean mm. the statistics that I've heard um, of horse slaughter in Australia vary from uh, 40,000 to 90,000 so and that isn't just Brumbies so you can imagine well if those horses and this is per year so most of those would come directly off the tracks. Um, when um, I was doing a bit of research, I have had people tell me that they're aware of um, uh, horse studs where if you know, they can't sell on um, their stock of horses, then they will call up the abattoir and they will come directly to a horse stud and take the whole lot of them. Um, so you can imagine um, just with the... the the lack of homes enough homes that would exist to rehome brumbies which they only um, are able to rehome you know maybe several hundred at a time um, during the year as opposed to thousands and thousands tens of thousands of off the track horses and there's thoroughbred rescues and so forth so there just there aren't enough homes and this is per year we're not talking about okay well there's you know, lack of homes for 40,000 horses. It's per year. Mm. But how do you
0: rehome a wild horse?
2: So, with Trooper, um, the thing that people need to know about the Brumbies is they are really quite special. They're incredibly switched on. Um, they're uh, even Carlos de Bernaberry who is, I would say, one of the foremost horsemen in Australia, um, originally from Argentina, but has. Um, been really active in the Brumby rescue movement, and well as well as um, being noted for his ability to work with any horse, he's a um, an advocate of not using any bits, not using any whips, not using any spurs. Um, doesn't chase them in round pens like a lot of so-called natural horsemanship. Um, even with him, the way that we have worked with him is, you know, you, you have to be the one to give your heart and mind to that Brumby first, and, rather than traditional methods where people want to dominate the animal, and, um, and then they'll decide whether or not they want to keep it. It's the, completely the other way around with the Brumby. Um, they're quite sensitive. Um, at the same time, they're also extraordinarily intelligent, and even Carlos... Has said himself that it's he's worked with horses all over the world, every kind of breed you can imagine, including mustangs, and he really says that the um, the brumby is the most intelligent out of all of them, and I would have to agree.
0: Yeah, right. I wow. just can I just backtrack a moment, just to the the um, the lucrative business of the dog meat business. I'm just trying to imagine how they if there's been a cull in the in the Guy Fawkes National Park or in the, the snowy mountains how. How logistically do they? Do, does the industry get in there and remove the bodies of the horses?
2: Well, sometimes they don't. Um, I would say that, you know, in terms of uh, the passive trapping, then they would. I mean, that's where what I think that the national parks is aiming for them is just. Um, are pass- corralled. Sort of. Yes. Yeah, yeah right. we're luring them into traps, right. um, and so then they, they're um, chucked. Yeah. Let's yeah.
1: just go into that a bit for listeners that don't know that passive trapping is, they lure them in with
2: like sugar or salt. Um, yeah, either salt licks with, salt with hay, with, um, you know, I don't know what other means, molasses, probably on the hay. Um, and uh, they're, they're trucked straight from from there. And that's where things went wrong with Trooper, where they ended up at the sale yards right. in first, and they shouldn't have because the stress involved in such transport is just extraordinary on the horses. It's, it's inhumane.
0: But what about when they, the, the, the cull takes place for like um, aerial shooting from a helicopter and so they're shot over a vast area of land? How would the industry get in and, and remove bodies from such a vast area?
2: Oh, I don't, I don't think that they can. I'm not really sure if they have contractors come in. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Um, a lot of those, and, and this is part of the argument, is that when they do this kind of aerial shooting, um, and they're talking about national forests logistically it's a nightmare to even think that those shots could be accurate and that was yeah. the massive problem with guy fox so
0: then those horses are left they're just to left rot. to rot and that, that's so where dead people came in, the in. Environment. yeah, yeah, yeah terrible. It's, yeah, yeah i think that yeah. you know, part okay. of the argument of the
1: aerial culling is because logistically to get um, trucks and things and do the passive trapping geographically with mountainous zones and what have you. It's tricky. So, yes, they do. um, When they shoot a lot of horses in tricky terrain, they leave a dead carcass. And then you've got the whole uh, issue of leaving a dead carcass in the environment, Right, you know, don't you? But also... Yeah, the, and the and welfare of being a marked It's from a, major, a helicopter. Yes, I mean, yes. it, come on, it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. I mean, you can't even properly. Ki- I would argue that you couldn't properly kill a horse, even at an abattoir, and 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 render that humane. Yeah, you, yeah. you can't yeah, say course. that because they're they're flight animals. Um, you know, they use captive bolt captive bolt um, means of which they you know they they render the horse unconscious, um, and. With the horse being as um, flighty as they are and moving a lot, I would, I would venture to say that, at least in the U.S., I know for a fact that if you go on to a lot of the Mustang welfare sites that you can see footage of horses, uh, undercover footage, just like you have with um, Animals Australia here doing their fabulous work with um, live export, um, that you can see footage of, of um, horse slaughter where you have a lot of... Um, People who um, are quite unskilled and um, killing horses in in ways that are not—they're not—they're not not immediately dead,
0: Mm. and they're doing it in front of—they're not a docile animal, and it's in front of yes,
2: and you can just imagine the smell of death in a place like that. To even get the horse in there and say that you're able to do that humanely yeah. is ridiculous.
0: Yeah. And I can imagine, and, and also, so shooting from a helicopter, the helicopter's moving, there's a mob of horses moving. I'd imagine shooting a, shooting a horse that was standing still from a moving helicopter would be somewhat challenging. So yeah. to get a, 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 a so-called humane shot from a of a, on a moving horse from a moving mm. helicopter is insane. Yeah, it's yeah. I
2: would say that you can't do it. I uh, mean, you'd be lucky if you could. And in, and horses move. They dodge. They weave. You know. They don't. They're they don't fast. run in. They're fast. They don't run in a straight line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, there's yeah. all those reasons. Yeah. I yeah.
1: think. Um. Yeah. Aerial culling is one thing, but also I have seen footage, as you probably have as well. Where even with the passive trapping, um, it is. It, it's quite. It's traumatic. It's really traumatic, and yeah. it's something in your heart. I mean, yeah. I know you're talking to the converted here, but you just. To see a wild animal living in a family pack mm. structure
0: mm-hmm. rounded with its, up. With its young. Yes. With, with its, it's, its young yeah. is,
1: is just, I, I can't, you know, it I know, it's, it's really hard of, to
2: fathom and, yeah. you know, it's for many years I, I mean, for over 30 years I've worked as an animal rights advocate and on, on various different kinds of animal issues here and abroad And, you know, especially with the wild horses and, you know, the embodiment of freedom, the embodiment of the Australian character, the character of any country um, in reality, because you look at, you know, they they always say that that no horse, no civilization. I mean, every civilization um, to date you can bet that the horse was involved. They've been on the planet for over 65 million years. They're constantly finding new information archaeologically on the origin of the species, you know, when they have disappeared and when they've returned. Um, You know, I know there's some argument, oh, well, it's not a native species here or there, Um, but yet they look at um, you know, various um, ecological and planetary events that were the cause of some of those things and not necessarily that, you know, the, the horse died out in an area. So you know I think that too with with climate change and the declaration, maybe not quite officially yet of us being in the epoch of the Anthropocene, that um, you know we've altered life on the planet um, in, in a way that, has now created a new geological era because of uh, of human impact, and the the crazy thing about that is that um, the argument of invasive or feral or introduced no longer flies. I mean that it can't be used anymore. You know it's outdated. Um, it doesn't um, fit into world best practices of conservation anymore. Um, You know, there's the emergence of new conservation research and technologies. I mean, UTS, Center for Compassionate Conservation, is one of those um, uh, research um, entities that are now exposing all of this that was always there. You know, everyone says, "Oh well, isn't it great that it's out in the open now?" Well, it always was out in the open. I think now it's just it's it's so in our face that we can't ignore it anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: in terms of the the wild horse and the
1: brumby, I I think in that terminology of introduced or invasive, um, it, it, even in its the native if you if you refer to being native,
2: even mm-hmm. in the native range, which is Mongolia, is that right? that well Mongolia would have a, a, a complete it's actually a completely different species um i was just reading up again on this more recently with the Przewalski horses in mongolia um you know that is a prehistoric horse uh, the origins would go back to pre- prehistory and where the modern horse splits off from the taki um i mean genetically they're different horses um, I think it's the the Przewalski horse that has 66 chromosomes instead of mm. 64, which a domestic horse has. It's getting scientific. I know. I'm it gets very – <laughs> <laughs> I know. My eyes glaze over myself, and I'm the one saying it. Yeah. It proves it's a silly kind of – we're in a new time, aren't we're, we? We're in we're, a new yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that um, especially with, uh, you know, the horses in, in the high country, um, you know – to I've been up there, and I've been up there with um, people who have lived up in that area for 150 years, you know, and generations of Australians. Um, Peter Cochran's one of them. Lisa Caldwell's another one of them. Um, and, and that group, um, you know, yes, the evidence is anecdotal on their part, but um, no more so than the, the crap that's coming out of some academics who... Um, are have done no um, peer-reviewed research and are asserting, you know, that, oh, they're doing this damage and that damage. And people are quoting those people left and right okay. based on nothing.
1: Okay. Well, let, before we, we go into that further with the Kosciuszko National Park, which we've kind of found our way to, we might just go to a bit of a break to give our voices a rest. Let's hear from Wilco and its Open Mind. That was a tune by Wilco called Open Mind. You are tuned into Freedom of Species. And I hope that we are opening up your mind about the issue of wild horses today as we speak with our guest, Maylee Sun, editor of the Wild Horse Journal. And Maylee, before I delve into the um, Kosciuszko National Park Draft Wild Horse Management Plan, you started to talk about native, you know, the whole argument of native introduced species. You've got a bit of extra... An extra blurb
2: you want to say about that? Um, Yeah, I I would recommend that people read. um, There's a journalist by the name of Fred Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, and uh, he wrote for The New Scientist and has been an environmental journalist for many, many years from the U.K. Um, He has a book that came out um, called The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation, um, I would highly recommend that people read that as well as Wendy Williams' book, The The Horse, The Epic History of Our Noble Companion. Those two will give people um, quite um, a mindful and earful about the the presence of horses on earth and what their contributions are and the fact that the, the backstory here in Australia with invasive species is probably more likely rooted in, um, again, uh, the setting up artificial boundaries and designating things as parks, as well as, um, you know, biology, academic biologists and people in urban areas who... Um, Have this very narrow definition of what conservation and ecology um, entails. And what Pierce goes into in his book is that, um, you know, dating back to the 1920s, there was um, a, a, um, a branch of modern biology known as invasion biology. And, you know, people latched onto that as the end all be all when it came to places like Australia where you know the 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 british brought over um you know rabbits foxes and horses and then you know let them go um and so with invasive biology um it became sort of the the benchmark for what should live and what should die and anything that was considered alien gets attacked um, even though they're species that have lived in other places on the planet for millions and millions of years And again, this goes back now to the fact that um, fast forward to what's happening in the world where, you know, it's been declared by many reputable groups that, um, you know, with climate change um, by the year 2020, two thirds of wild animals. Now, this is not all species, but wild animals will be extinct as well as by 2050, um, one one quarter of all species will be extinct and that's not that far away um, so you and know, add to
1: that australia is the largest uh the, the highest country for mammalian extinction is that right yeah that's yeah,
2: right yeah. and you know you can't blame that on the horses especially again when you have a planet where all forms of life all forms are struggling to survive and thus are migrating so, you know, sort of, you, so you've got these academics who are behind a lot of this push to continue a, an old paradigm. I mean, they're not up to date anymore with what's really happening in the planet. So I, I'm not sure what, um, you know, and, and a really strong cultural bias that's being perpetuated. Um, I was at a um, a field biology day where um, they were giving, to, and this is in my local area, where they were giving tours on... Um, different uh, flora and fauna in the area, including, you know, mushrooms and so forth. And a young woman, some, somehow it came up, a rabbit had run by, and then someone mentioned something, oh, you know, they're, they're not native. And then this young woman who happened to be there, and she couldn't have been more than, I don't know, 19 or 20 years old, um, who was a university student, um, had just went off on this rant about in- invasive species. And then somehow someone mentioned horses, and she started talking about brumbies. And so I confronted her and said, "You know, where did you get this? Where did where did you get this information?" And um, it was really um, eye opening when she mentioned to me that, "Oh, well, her professor told her that." So again, a lot of this old stuff is still being taught. Mm. So um, I, I'm not really sure that any real science is being done anymore. Mm.
1: Uh, I guess um, it, it's easy to kind of latch on to the binary, I guess, of the native species, good, feral, bad, it, isn't it, for everyone. And yes. even though the alternative is a little bit more complicated for people yes, to latch right. on to in today's um, world. It's easy we to we have a target. We need more articulation, yeah. isn't, And which is what you're doing um, with your work. Let's um, delve into the uh, discussion about the Kosciuszko National Park Draft Wild Horse Management Plan 2016. Now, for those that don't know, the Kosciuszko National Park is located in the southeastern corner of New South Wales, about 400km southwest of Sydney, Um, and it also is contiguous with the Alpine National Park in Victoria to the south and the Namadji National Park in the ACT if you visited the towns such as Tumut or Jindabyne, they are just outside and service the park, so very well-touristed area. The waters of the Snowy River, the Murray River and the Gundalen River all rise in this particular park. Uh, the actual National Park draft, horse, draft Wild Horse Management Plan indicates bringing the Brumby population down from 6,000 to 600. Tell us what's going on here, May Lee with the Kosciuszko Brumbies?
2: And so <clears throat> I think if people want the the whole backstory, it's probably good for them to go on to the Australian Brumbie Alliance website and read um, the historical information that's been regularly posted there. Um, and, and that will give them the whole background. I think first of all, the, the number of 6,000 has been disputed. When I first started doing research, I can tell you in 2010, on the numbers of Brumbies in the country. There wasn't one government department that I could identify, and I've called quite a few of them, including DPI, including Parks, who could actually point me to any accurate data. They, In fact, they didn't even really have data. They just said, oh, well, the estimates are between this and this. So no real study has been done. So yes, they have, um, again, um, determined that 6,000 maybe is the number that are in Kosciuszko. They don't know what sustainable numbers are because they haven't tried any, they haven't done any research to even determine, well, what's gonna work, what's not gonna work, what is sustainable. I think now people are raising questions um, to determine, well, what what would the numbers be um, if we were to remove X amount of horses and then study the number that are left? So with the draft management plan, I think um, it was open for public comment. I'm not sure that they even had to do that, but they did because there were so many stakeholders who um, raised concerns about what was going to happen, um, including a a well-known anti-Brumby academic who constantly puts forth ideas about, um, you know, the outlandish ideas um, about cannibal Brumbies roaming the high country, Cannibal. Um, (coughs) cannibal Yeah, cannibal Brumbies (laughs) roaming the high country. So uh, I think most people who know wild horses and have been following the Brumby situation know who that is. Um, He's written quite a bit on um, that blog, The Conversation, and there's been a lot of people disputing his claims because they keep changing. Um, I know that we're in the era of throwing out statistics and ideas um, you know, in the fashion of Donald Trump and just changing them <laughs> later when, as they suit you. So that's sort of what's happening with this guy. Whatever suits um, his agenda, he, he just kind of throws this stuff out there. Um, and the way that they, they count numbers, of course, is um, what they have been doing, in my opinion, um, and many others, is they will extrapolate from doing an aerial survey um, of where Brumbies gather and then extrapolate to other areas of the park. So like, like they count the
1: kangaroo population, they just see how many is in yes. that kilometer zone and times it by, times it by how many kilometers amount. you've yes. got. Yep.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so, again, there, there is an entrenched bias. Um, so, however, my understanding is that there are some... Um, some field biologists and ecologists out there who are wanting to do the right thing and who want to do objective research. Um, I think it's a matter of convincing parks that that is the way to go. Um, I think those people have um, presented their recommendations to the parks in that plan. Um, Can we go into... um, Okay, so so the the push to reduce
1: the populations as mm-hmm. I understand from being out you know I don't know anything about this issue really is um that it, th- they cause a lot of damage and I know that you know uh, actually just on the weekend I was feeding some horses some grass um around where I live and uh, you know the lady there has adjusted horses on her property she said yeah give them some grass anyway there were three horses and then I turned away Mm. to walk up the road and oh my god I thought an earthquake had gone off. they ran up to <laughs> chasing me not to run and the pounding you know of these big bees mm-hmm. it's very easy to be convinced yep yeah, they're doing damage yes. do you yeah. know what I mean of course yeah. those big things big hoofs do damage so can you go into a bit of um well one do they do damage and what kind of damage do they claim they're doing is are they, um, let's talk about that. And has there been any science to back that up?
2: Okay. So I think it's, it it is a, it's something to be discussed because again, we have to be open to discussion about, all right, well, what, what is the impact? It's interesting, however, that the first question asked and the only thing studied is what is the impact, i.e. what is the damage as opposed to what are the contributions? So, um, Again, that is another, uh, another bias when it comes to studying the wild ho- horse population, specifically in Australia, um, where in other places they're looking at um, environmental degradation and what is the human impact. So that's part of their management plans as well, is to ask the question, what is the human impact? And of course, in Australia, you know that, again, designation of parks means public has access. There's expansion of the ski fields, there's four-wheel drive tracks and um, campers hikers and um, and all of that to consider but that is not what's included when people are assessing damage right so now, it's
1: when you ask you're saying what i'm hearing is in the question yes that the, is what damage
2: are they doing so you take a photograph of that right and you're not entertaining to the exclusion of everything to else to the exclusion of right. everything else and yet you know we know that in other areas of the world um, there has been rewilding and people can, uh, again, Google, you can Google rewilding of horses and there's an organization called Rewilding Europe, um, which covers many different countries where um, uh, people can read about um, the benefits of reintroduction programs of wild okay. horses. But I think, you know, in insensitive areas, yes, there may be impact, but to what degree and how can it be prevented? Why is it not being um, logically, sanely, and humanely um, asked in that way as opposed to what's the damage that they're doing and how can we eradicate? Um, there's other deeper questions to be asked. Um, now, in terms of their contribution to the ecosystems, um, they do have positive roles. It is patently impossible for a species to exist and have zero, Positive contributions—it's not possible, and yet that's what a lot of these acad- the anti brumby academics are asserting. Okay. So, if we want to talk about the positive contributions that horses can make, um, you know, they—they they are removers of excess understory vegetation, um, so that does help mitigate the severity of bush and forest fires and grassland fires. Um, you know, they're preyed upon and um, scavenged animals for natural predators. Um, and everyone's, oh, Australia has no predators. Well, they do. And the wild horse does as well as the kangaroo, um, such as dingoes, crocodiles, snakes, um, certain plants. Um, so, you know, you, you I mean, I've seen dingoes in, in the Northern Territory. Um, Bonrick Station's a great example of um, an ecological zone that was created by the Franz Weber Foundation to help preserve the Brumbies when they found out that they were being slaughtered in mass in, in, um, in Australia. And those Brumbies are free-living, free-roaming um, in a contained 500-square-kilometer area. That was a former cattle station. And there are dingoes and there are crocodiles on that property. Um, and the horses are not interfered with unless absolutely necessary, um, and they will humanely um, intervene. Um, but they're, they're not culled. Um, you also have places like the Namibian desert where Talani Grayling did her research and continues to this day to do research and live there, where horses left behind through, um, you know, diamond mining industry. Um, you know, what the community did there. And, and we're talking about a desert environment, which is where Brumbies also live. Um, what they did there is... Um, is is. Uh, a lobby to have the former mining company as well as the community fund keeping open the bore the boreholes where they were drilling, so to provide water for these horses. And they have their their natural predators would be. Um, you know, cheetahs and um, hyenas.
1: Yeah. M- uh, many, many predators for them over there, but
2: back in Australia mm-hmm. at the Franz de Waal, was the? It the- yeah. so Franz Weber um, Foundation. So they've got crocs area- and they've got dingoes, okay. you know, to, to help um, limit the population as well as when, when there's drought and when there are ecological conditions um, that are not conducive to reproduction, um, for the most part, most species will limit when they're, are conditions conducive to reproduction when there's plenty of food i mean that just stands to reason that they will reproduce so the question is well what do you do um again i think it's a matter of looking at what is the sustainable population if you remove some and then the next year there's a drought we all know that the climate in australia is so variable Yes. That from one year to the next, you never know what it's going to be. Yeah. So if you're just reducing on an arbitrary set of numbers to say, well, let's in 10 years end up with 600, one bushfire, one season could wipe them out.
1: Okay. So I know that um, on the Australian Brumby Alliance um, a latest press release, they do say that the strategy of maintaining only 200 horses in three separate areas, which is what the draft plan um, wants to,
2: mm-hmm. to
1: um, bring into fruition – that runs the risk of what you're saying, that yes. the next uh, fire or any Cold would, winter. Cold winter will just take the whole population out. Yes, um, yes. So they... And also it leaves inbreeding as an issue That's as right. well, which is not...
2: Right, and that, again, it, that... Good for the The reason population. why the Brumbies and horses in general have survived and lived on the planet for as long as they have... You know, we're talking millions of years. Like I said, sixty million years is because um, they self-select for breeding. And when you force them into a situation where you're limiting their ability to self-select, then you're not going to end up with a hardy horse. And 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 thus in lies the political um, problems with. The brumbies yeah. is that you have people wanting to management to wanting to manage them who really are not clued in to the impact they would have. Well, well, that gets us
1: back to why we need a sturdy, good population. Yes, is let's get back to because it'd be it'd be awful to skip over like the actual positive impacts that they yes. do that that mm-hmm. don't get acknowledged. Um, can you you mentioned the fire because they feed on a lot of under.
2: Underground, yes, understory, under so uh-huh. they mitigate fire risk um so they become food for you know scavenge scavenger animals um they become food for you know like i said the the um, native animals like dingoes and crocs um they're soil builders i mean anyone who has ever owned a horse understands that you can grow your vegetables straight out of horse poo. <laughs> I mean, so, true. <laughs> so they're germinators. So they're, yeah. they're also, yeah, they're germinators. They build the soil. So they, they pr- produce this moist, rich soil, like and that too, would help mitigate the, um, the forest fire. So not just eating it, but the hummus building, um, ability in their feces, um, is uh, conducive to growing a wide variety of plants um, and they can carry seeds Um, and they carry seeds differently is that right yes read
1: somewhere on your your website they they're
2: post-gastric digesters they're not like ruminants like um you know sheep and uh, and cows with the four stomachs that's correct yeah right they don't have they don't have that a single stomach yeah that's correct so
1: the seeds Seed so can healthily pass through. Pass through. That's and right. They can, and it you know, people say, Oh well, down.
2: it's it's passing weeds, but it's also passing the good stuff. And I can tell you that more people are probably carrying weeds in on their clothing, in their shoes, um, and on their car wheels, and on their camping equipment, and in all of the soil that they bring in to build things. I mean, we were astounded when there was an ecologist from the U.S. that came out by the name of Craig Downer. And uh, we were up in Kosciuszko doing our own research. We were drinking the water straight from the tributaries, um, just like bending down drinking it. Oh, let's see if we get Jardia. Well, we didn't, you know, because people were saying, oh, you know, you, the horses are polluting the waterways. And, and you know, we, we drank the water that day from various places and not once did we get sick. That's brave. You put yourself out there as a We did. <laughs> <laughs> again, yeah, you got to put your heart and soul on the line yeah. first, you know, before you can blame the horse. Um, and uh, and the other thing too is they it's it's been known that that brumbies and and again, you know, people who live close to the land know this because they've seen it. Um, that they they're creators and diggers of wells in dry areas. You know Sam Forwood, who's the caretaker on Bonrook Station, as well as Peter Fisher, who lived up in the Northern Territory for quite a while, and he's um, a real Brumby advocate and has a a whaler stud in um, in Victoria. Um, he, he said he's witnessed it for years that um, you know the Brumbies will dig holes when when it's dry. And um, if they can, if anyone can find water, it's them, and that will also feed other wildlife as and well. And that, that
1: will help. That will benefit. That benefits other native species.
2: That's right, as well.
1: And I also, exactly. and also in winter. So in the conditions of ice and snow, they do that as well, don't they? So, yeah, they'll break snow. They'll so break, they break ice. So they break snow and ice. So yeah. native species can therefore survive more because they can reach the yes. the forage underneath. Right. So,
2: so again, we we don't give nature. Um, the credit that we should because it's extremely intelligent more so than we are.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. Thanks, Maylee. And, of course, it's not too late to um, act on behalf of the Kosciuszko Brumbies. If you head to the Australian Brumbie Alliance website, um, they've got a little link there um, and they have a little list of what, you know, you can read before you contact Mike Baird or Mark Speakman and I'll put those details on our podcast and Facebook page. Kate do you have some community service announcements I for do. I I've do,
0: got, I've got several. Um, so first up the Wilderness Society is hosting a rally to show support for the proposed Great Forest National Park. That's going to be held this Tuesday the 22nd of November at Melbourne's Parliament House. It's in the evening, it starts at 6pm. Oh that's a big one. Yeah yeah that's a goodie. Um, I'm sure you're interested in that, yes. Emma. Uh, well, we're talking about the leadbeater's possum, and, and if lots of lots of things. But yep. yeah, that that does include the leadbeater's habitat. Um, so then, there's also going to be two gorilla projection events coming up to highlight the cruelty of the egg industry when i say gorilla i'm talking about gorilla i was thinking (laughs) i'm talking about are we eating gorilla monkeys monkeys in australia (laughs) i'm talking about independence resistance fighters i'm not talking about the primate so there's these um two gorilla projection events and they're going um they're taking place during the egg industry's annual agm so the first is going to be at the geelong pier this Wednesday the 23rd of November it's, it's obviously it's evening because it's a projection it's starting at 7 45 p.m. the second is going to be at South Bank in Melbourne on Friday the 25th of November also at seven forty five. Andy Medic from the AJ uh, from the Animal Justice Party and also another Freedom of Species team member will be speaking at both events then Animal Liberation Victoria is having a fundraising photo exhibition and party at gallery G1 in Collingwood on Saturday, the 5th of November. If I remember rightly, I think these are photos that have been taken by Noah Hannibal.
1: Oh, some of the, I did see a few of those briefly on yeah, Facebook. Amazing. They look very beautiful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, fitness for a Mission, number five, is a fundraising fitness session that um, that's raising funds for Sea Shepherd. That's going to be taking place at Mornington on Sunday, the 27th of November, and you, you need to book a spot for that one. Um the Sea Shepherd Marine Debris campaign is having beach cleanups at Adelaide's Semaphore Beach and at Melbourne's Mordialic Pier. The Mordialic one's also going to be a dive cleanup if you <clears throat> excuse me if you're a scuba diver. And both of those events are going to be on Sunday the 27th of November. And one more, Dance for the Animals. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a new event that I'm aware of. Um, it sounds like lots of fun. Dance for the Animals is a family-friendly festival at the Northcote Town Hall that's taking place next Sunday the 27th of November during the day. Um, that's going to have lots of good food and activities and music and dancing and temporary tattoos and it's going to be lots of fun. Is that a ticketed event? Um, not as far as I can tell. I yep. think you can turn up for that one. But for to get details about all of those things, they all have their own respective Facebook pages so just look it up online and they will, um, as always, they will make their way eventually onto our own Freedom of Species Facebook page.
1: A family-friendly dance festival sounds yeah, but fantastic. Yeah,
0: but and not just like if you don't want to dance, there's lot, lots of other things going on as well. So it's just like a, a fun day out. Lovely. Um, that's all the, that's all the um, community announcements I've got. Great, great. Thank you so much for coming in, Maylee. Thanks for having
2: me. It was yeah, great fun.
1: That was great. I'm sure we'll have you in again on the show because you're a woman of great
0: knowledge yeah, and there's so much to talk about, and it's there are a lot, and it's an evolving campaign. It's an evolving, you know, it's you know, f- things are happening continuously on this, on this
2: issue. Mm-hmm. So um,
0: we
1: need and to hear from a, you yeah, again.
0: There's a lot of those issues you're talking about are yet to be really
1: clarified for the public. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, and,
2: and it, I think is the more information the better, and also, um, yeah, just putting out there that you know, good conservation means biodiversity, and the horses are part of that, and people need to to really take a look at um, the evolution of the horse and, and get a better understanding of just how fascinating and how um, selfless they are, in in not only in um, behavioral terms, but um, ecologically.
0: Yeah, and we need to stop scapegoating other species for the impact that we and our it's animal the, agriculture right. is having. Absolutely. It's 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 like it's gone far enough. We've got to stop mm. passing yeah, the buck. Right. Yeah. And as you
1: said, there's no peer-reviewed science on the destruction no. they're doing. So you really got to think about mm. where your messages are coming from with this one. And and your uh, website um, Wild Horse Journal is a fantastic one, as well as Australian Br- Brumby Alliance, to to get the information on what's what's really going on. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm. And we
2: we have to be careful too that native species don't end up getting targeted next because it's. I, I don't. I don't think it's just limited to just um, you introduced. know the introduced species. Yeah. Now we're starting to see native species like the kangaroo being targeted. Yeah, they're know. being
0: scapegoated now for the. Yeah,
2: they're being scapegoated. So my next article yeah. is going to be less meat, less heat, more bull. I look forward <laughs> oh, to. it. I love that. Reading <laughs> less. That one. Can you say that again, please? <laughs> it's less heat, less meat, less heat, more bull. I yeah. will look forward. We to We definitely that. need to
0: come when you've got that one up we'll definitely get you back in here about that because yeah there's a there's hours and hours of content oh yeah yeah we
2: can't we can't start thinking of animals in terms of their their their, their carbon footprint you know yeah. In, yeah. in terms of what's what would be sustainable for food production I mean it's ridiculous it's it's really starting to get absurd
0: it is and isn't like the, the kangaroo cull here it's the the largest animals
2: wild yeah. animal slaughter in the yes, world yes that's right
0: and it's I, th- I suspect most Australians don't even know that.
2: No, no, it's shocking. It's really quite shocking. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we'll, we look
1: forward to talking about how that that kangaroo issue has now become. You know, people are saying, "Oh, eat eat kangaroo because it's more green." Yeah. Suddenly, that yeah. oh, it's native, let's save it. We'll throw that flag out the window. know about yeah, that's eat right. it because it's that's green. Right. This yeah. is what I mean and about the like picking and choosing. Really. Yeah. first
2: it's the Brumbies, oh, they're non native, and now it's your own native animal. I yeah, mean, the code what's of angst, yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: All right, well, thank you so much for tuning in to Freedom of Species this week. Next week, we've got another live show. We have Lawrence Pope coming in. Lawrence has written extensively um, on animal and been a, a big um, animal advocate. And, campa- and successful campaigner over the years. Uh, I have been reading uh, his latest book, Some Touch of Pity, uh, which is a great read. So we'll we'll talk about that next week.
0: Have a great week. And we're going to leave you with a, a, a song from G-Love. It's called, um, what's it called? It's called Ain't That Right. And, oh, by the way, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with us on info at freedomspecies.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. And you can listen to the podcast at freedomofspecies.org. Stay tuned for Encyclopedia and see you next week.